Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to GEM23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua, and I'm a senior at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to GEM23 series proceeds and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, Growing in a Green World, on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM23. This week, we are joined by David Miller, who is the Managing Director of the C40 Center for City Climate Policy and Economy. Mr. Miller was Mayor of Toronto from 2003 to 2010 and served as Chair of C40 Cities from 2008 until 2010. Thanks for joining us, Mayor Miller. Charles, it's a, it's a pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation and uh, very appreciative of your interest in the issue of cities and, and climate change. So I think it'd be helpful for the listeners if you start by walking through the opportunities and challenges that cities are facing right now in this moment as they think through climate mitigation and adaptation strategies and as you know, there's a lot of different priorities that are on mayors and the minds of local government officials. They have to balance COVID-19, financial and public health impacts, budget constraints, political tension, perhaps social unrest, um, racial or economic inequalities. There's just a lot on the minds of mayors. So how do local governments think through these challenges and where does climate fit in? Well, I think, for, first of all, the, the very best mayors are mayors of all the people. The truly great mayors like Richard Daly from Chicago represent the hopes and aspirations of the people of their city, and they try to build a city with them that meets those hopes and aspirations. And if they do it well, it means that no one is left behind and that everyone has a, a place in that city. So, you know, that's about a whole range of things. You mentioned some really important issues like public health and, of course, during COVID, the role of mayors was incredibly important. But climate isn't just an issue where cities are using the charismatic leadership of mayors to help the world avoid climate breakdown, which they are doing. It's an issue that cities must address, and there's no choice, like public health. You know, a sweet talk, I'm in the city of Toronto today, and probably about 1,500 miles away, there are wildfires, and the smoke is here surrounding our city. And to me, it's symbolic of, of why cities got involved in climate in the first place. It's because we have to. You know, cities are seeing much more impact of extreme weather events, whether it's wildfires. You know, here we're only seeing the smoke in L.A. The wildfires were essentially surrounding the cities uh, only a couple of short years ago. Flooding, you know, the impact of uh, Hurricane Sandy in New York City. It took years for Queens to be rebuilt. Wall Street was pretty quick. Queens, it was something like seven years. In many more impacts of climate change, including on, on public health and, and you know, health issues associated with poor air quality from the same things that cause climate change. So cities, mayor, it's not like mayors have a choice. 
And the unique thing about city governments is the public expectation, because cities deal with real actions, is for action, not for talk, not for policy, for results. So you have, a, to me, a unique place where cities are compelled to act on climate, and the expectation is they'll do meaningful action in anything they do that re- will result in real change. And I think that's that's what we see in the leadership of the best cities. Not every city necessarily, but certainly the best. Uh, well, thanks so much for the overview. It'd also be helpful, I think, walk us through the psychology of a mayor in terms of navigating different stakeholders and how they think about climate as part of the strategy, what what levers do they have to sort of focus and, and pull in order to ensure that the full range of stakeholders from those who are, let's say, downright skeptical of climate change to those who may be interested in engaging on these issues but lack the clarity around how to do so to ones who are very progressive on these topics? How both during your time as a mayor and now in your role at C40, how do you help local governments and mayors and decision makers think through those those dynamics? Well, I think, first of all, most urban residents in most places globally, not just in North America, accept the science of climate change. It's clear, and they know from their own experiences with extreme weather events that the climate is changing. It's a real worry. And they see on television and on the internet events happening elsewhere, you know, whether it's droughts in places like Sudan or incredible flooding, biblical level flooding in places like Jakarta, which is literally sinking as a city. And they're having to move the capital. Jakarta is a city of something like 12 million people and the city's sinking. So people, most urban residents get it. And that matters because there are really two things to answer your question, two broad things that cities can bring to bear on this issue. The first is that city governments structurally, sometimes by law, have really robust public engagement processes and really engage with people. And you certainly see it in a city like New York City or a city like Boston or a city like San Francisco, where where people, when they disagree with things, they're out in the streets and in the newspapers and commenting And cities over time have developed a way to work with their residents. So when people are speaking up about climate change, they expect their city government to act. And from the perspective of a mayor, that's a good thing. Because you can mobilize people in support of of good policies, good programs, and good actions. And the second thing that city governments have going for them is because most of the world's greenhouse gases are actually attributed to cities and the activities needed to sustain them, 70 to 75%, they can actually be very impactful. And most of the cities, certainly in North America and in most places in the world, have similar ability to influence the places where there are significant greenhouse gases being admitted. And that is how we heat, cool, and build buildings and where we build them, the kind of cities we build. Are they spread out and sprawling or are they dense? Our transportation systems and networks, which obviously relate to the previous point, but are we building clean transportation systems? Are we ensuring that people can walk and cycle and take public transit instead of have to drive? How we manage waste, 
particularly if food waste is composted so that the methane which it creates doesn't simply escape to the air but is is captured that's extremely important and how we generate electricity which isn't always a direct power in cities but at a minimum they have a, a significant indirect influence in some cities like Los Angeles actually generate electricity. It can help move the grid from being dirty to clean, which Los Angeles has has done. So it's a very powerful combination from my perspective of being really engaged with people and of having the powers very directly over areas that really can substantively make a difference to reducing the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate breakdown. Thanks so much again for that overview. I, I want to dive into some specific sectors now. Let's start with transportation. As you pointed out, public transit is a critical lever that cities can take to advance transportation decarbonization. In, in many communities, particularly in the U.S., as well as other developed cities, it hasn't received as much attention, let's say, as electric vehicles as a transport decarbonization solution. I'm curious perhaps why you view that to be the case and what can be done at the city and local level to elevate the importance of public transit in addition to robust walking and cycling infrastructure? Well, I think the answer to that is is an example of why city leadership on climate makes sense, because what you can do to advance public transport is to make it excellent and make it easy for people to use. And if you do, lots of Real-world examples show that people will choose excellent rapid transit over driving because it's easier and more convenient, but it's got to be excellent. can't be mediocre, but it certainly can't be bad. And ideally, it's rail-based and clean. And why that shows that climate action by cities makes sense is because that's also what you want to do to build a really good livable city that's successful economically and socially. And that's the job of a mayor, to build a really livable city that's successful locally and and socially in every other way and environmentally. So doing the right thing for climate does the right thing for for building a great city. The the U.S. is, is funny. I spoke to a very prominent high school earlier this year in March and in advance of, of Earth Day. And the school does a lot in the environment. And the first questions I got after I spoke were about electric vehicles. And I think the U.S. is just a little bit more car-centric than almost anywhere else in the world. And so people think, when they're thinking about climate solutions, of changing a car-centric culture to one that has clean vehicles. That's, of course, part of it, but it's not the most important part. If you can ensure that our cities are more like New York, Manhattan in New York, or to some extent Brooklyn, or Boston, or Chicago, or Toronto, or Montreal, where huge numbers of people live walking distance from rapid transit, you will have a city that's easy to get around, that is affordable from a transportation perspective at least, and that has a far lower environmental impact from from transportation. If you compare the greenhouse gas profile of a city like Houston to a city like Toronto, it's much more about the vehicles in Houston, but a city like Toronto, it's much more about the energy used to heat and cool and build buildings. So it's extremely important for cities to take a leadership role 
And they can do it in a variety of ways. They can use their planning powers to increase density so that there is sufficient density for transit. That's a big challenge to sprawling suburban style cities that are in some places in the U.S. because it's very hard to build transit at scale when you have communities that that are built sprawl style because there isn't sufficient density to justify good enough service to get people to change their mind and, and use transit, not just when they have to, but as an option. So the planning powers of a city, the, the ability to encourage density, all matter in the same way that a city's choice to invest in public transit matters. And there's a final point there as well. And it's, it's true in some North American cities, true in some cities and other places, less true in some cities. But in a number of North American cities, there isn't the tax base at a city level in order to build rapid transit. You need money from the state or federal government because most of the taxes go to them. So in Toronto's example, Toronto gets about seven cents of of every tax dollar people pay predominantly through property taxes. All of the sales tax revenue and income tax revenue goes to the provincial national government. And that's that money is what's needed to build transit. So in addition to the other leadership issues of the city, the city government and the mayor in particular has to be very shrewd about how they're able to create transit plans that are then capable of support by state and federal governments. And if they do it in a smart way and an effective way, then you can see cities truly build density around rapid transit. And you can see this in in some U.S. cities where there are modal switches to rail-based rapid transit or to clean electric buses from cars because the cities have begun to, to build the density, build the transit, encourage people to ride. And if you have a good system, uh, people pretty quickly discover that it's it's much easier to use transit for many tasks than it is to drive. And you don't need people to switch completely. You just need them to switch some of the time and you've made a massive difference. That makes sense. And you bring up buildings. So I'd love to talk a bit more about that in terms of, you know, there's general thesis that to decarbonize the building sector, we need to electrify everything, advance energy efficiency measures, and make sure that the power that's generated to power our homes and buildings is renewable. I'd be curious to hear you walk through some of the challenges and issues that you're seeing cities that are on cities' minds as they think about decarbonizing the building stock. First of all, the challenges are practical, not technical, and practical or political, not technical. And I think that's important for people to to realize. Technically, we can get on a path to do what we need to do, which is to basically have emissions by 2030 in the U.S. and Canada more because we've created more of the emissions. emissions. That's technically feasible today. We don't need to invent new things. To get to new zero by 20, net zero by 2050, yes, it would be helpful if we invent some new technologies. But to dramatically lower emissions today, there aren't really technical obstacles. For example, certainly in the U.S., Most commercial buildings, apartment buildings, and a lot of single-family homes are heated and cooled by gas, which we call natural gas. It isn't really natural. It's a fossil fuel. It would actually be better to call it fossil gas. C40's recently done a study 
that shows if you include the leaks in pipelines to deliver the gas in the first place, gas is more or less as polluting from a climate perspective as coal. So gas is as dirty as coal, but we have this image that it's somehow better. Well, it isn't. So it's one of the reasons why the building sector matters so much. We need to get gas out of the buildings. Full electrification would be terrific. Minimizing the use of gas everywhere we could is really significant and important. And there are pretty significant initiatives happening in a range of cities globally and certainly in North America. So I can point to some examples. So when Mike Bloomberg was uh, mayor of New York, on commercial buildings, large commercial buildings, which were the biggest climate polluters, so that's why he started with them, he had landlords post their energy consumption. Sounds simple, and it is. It was transformative. Because in the best buildings, the tenants said, wait a minute, I'm paying for this really inefficient building. You, the landlord, if you want me to stay as a tenant, you got to deliver a more efficient building. And we saw in the best buildings in New York, a huge revolution of energy efficiency. The Empire State Building, for example, did two complete energy retrofits, each one, I believe, over $100 million invested to dramatically lower the amount of energy used to heat and cool the building. That was really effective. Then Mayor Bill de Blasio went a step further, brought in something called Local Law 97, which mandated a reduction in carbon in the biggest buildings uh, in New York City. A wider net was cast than, than Mayor Bloomberg's initiative. And again, that was focusing on where most of the emissions were. One exception, which was multi-residential apartment buildings. And that was because this would be seen as a capital expense for the purpose of rent control. And the rent control law, if you spend enough money, you get outside of rent control. So there was a practical and political issue about how you preserve reasonably priced rental apartments while mandating landlords to do the work necessary to dramatically lower energy consumption. And that work all pays for itself. It just doesn't pay for itself very quickly, which is why the private sector doesn't do it without a mandate or regulation or an incentive. Depending on the price of gas, seven to 10 years is a typical estimate. Most building owners want a capital payback in two years. So that's why it doesn't happen under, under private ownership without regulation. They haven't quite sorted out that rent control issue in New York, but it's a good example of the kind of holdup that's happening not for technical reasons, not really for financial reasons, but for a, an understandable practical equity reason. We're also seeing lots of movements for new buildings to not use gas at all. Montreal, Canada didn't ban gas, but their new regulations will have the same practical effect. And they're doing it in a partnership with Hydro-Quebec, which is a publicly owned electricity utility. And we're seeing that in several cities in the U.S., that new buildings are not going to have gas hookups. So there's really strong movement, and it's directionally correct. We have to end the use of gas in buildings. If we're going to reach the target of having emissions by 2030, it needs to speed up. But we know what to do, and the key is overcoming some of those equity issues, like not disadvantaging lower-income tenants by pushing their rent, rents up. There's ways to do that. But uh, as you, you can probably understand, 
it gets a little bit complicated to work through the dynamics of how you ensure that that happens. Groups like C40, there's a critical role that they can play as convener, bringing together different cities, mayors, communities, ideas, resources, knowledge, best practices. How do we continue to build out that infrastructure where these smart ideas can be tested, piloted, developed, implemented, and scaled? And if you were a, you know, if you were still the mayor of a large city like Toronto today, what would excite you most about the opportunities in the climate space, broadly speaking, that you would be interested in tackling? Well, what would really excite me, I'll answer your second question first. What would really excite me about this moment? is that cities' actions on climate have now been validated globally and recognized by the United Nations and everywhere else as impactful and real. And you know, when I was mayor, we were a forerunner in this movement. And you, you had to not just act, you always had to make the case that city actions mattered. And it's conclusively shown now. And that's very exciting from the perspective of a mayor because mayors want to make real change on behalf of their residents. They don't just want to be a talking shop. They want to make a difference. And and you can. And you can make a difference by building great cities that are a great place to live for everybody because you're addressing the quality of the buildings, the quality of the transport, the quality of the walking and cycling, the tree planting, the food programs in city childcare centers and senior homes. You know, we haven't had a chance to talk about that, but that matters. The quality of your waste management, all of these things and much, much more, the green space, the, the walkability and livability, the density are all about building a great city, but they're all also about addressing the climate. And I think it's a really exciting moment to be in for mayors today where their actions are recognized where there's a huge constituency of support. People want them to succeed. People are thirsty for action. And and the real challenge is making sure when there are complicated paths to doing it, like where you're trying to do energy retrofits in buildings that have rent control, the real challenge is a practical one of finding a solution that brings people together. And that, in general, is the art of politics. So this is a moment where mayoral leadership matters, not just locally, it matters globally. It's effective, it works, and more than that, it's needed because we're almost at the level science shows that once we get to, which is 1.5 degrees, that all bets are off on whether we can avoid climate breakdown. So we need this leadership, and good news is the leadership's there and the actions can work. We need them at scale quickly is is the one challenge and you know those of us who are optimists think that mayors can rise to that challenge i, I certainly hope so because the alternative is bleak well thanks so much for taking the time mayor miller i really appreciate your insights and your leadership i it's a real pleasure and thanks charles and good luck you can find more information about c40 cities at c40.org and you can follow them on twitter at c40 cities thanks again to mayor miller for taking the time to talk with us today You can learn more about the Center for International Development's research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.